Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Matthew Fisher, 35 years international correspondent on the Berlin Wall. David Agron is a Canadian journalist living in Mexico. We'll hear David on the mass murders in Mexico, the two families that were assaulted by the drug cartel killers. Michael Taub, columnist and former Stephen Harper speechwriter on Andrew Scheer, continuing to lead the Conservative Party. And my question to Conservatives have to edge a little bit to the left by the time the next election comes around. Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, on the OK Boomer phenomenon. And Professor Jane Kirtley, did the Royals quash a major news story? Some of what's on the podcast. When I was, uh, I think it was about 13 years of age, um, I was in Germany and I was uh, attending school there and the Berlin Wall had just, it was up, um, but it had only been up for a couple of years. And uh, I wanted to see it. And so um, family members we were staying with while I was, attending school there, took us to uh, to the wall. At that point, it was uh, where we went. It was it was a fence. It was a barbed wire fence, and it was extremely intimidating in, in appearance. And we know later on we found out just how intimidating that wall was because another family member of mine married a young man who had tried to escape, who did, in fact, escape from East Germany, climbed over the wall with his brother and was being fired at by East German border guards with machine guns. They really didn't want you to leave. So today marks the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, a momentous global occasion, symbolically shoving aside the final power of the Iron Curtain of the USSR to imprison entire nations of people. Matthew Fisher writes about the fall of, as Germans call it, the Mauer, the wall. This week for Global News, he wasn't at the wall on the night it fell. Matthew was in the Soviet Union after months of traveling across East Germany and other Warsaw Pact states and Soviet republics. And I found it particularly compelling that uh, Matthew Fisher was in, uh, in Moscow when it happened. Matthew was a foreign correspondent for 35 years, covering such dramas as the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the end of East Germany, resident visiting scholar, in security and defense at Massey College at the University of Toronto and a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute as well as a regular contributor to Global News on Global Affairs. Matthew, thank you very much for the time. What's the first memory that comes back to you of that night when the when the wall fell, when you were in, in Moscow? And then I want to ask you about what happened when you were in, in East Germany. Well, everybody was stunned. Uh, nobody had figured anything like this would happen. It was generally understood by the summer of 1989 that the Soviets were losing their grip. Poland uh, had uh, uh, become quasi-free. Hungary seemed headed that way. But East Germany was the most rigid country. Uh, it uh, cleaved most closely to the Soviet orthodoxies of the day. And so there was a lot of um, uh, disbelief among uh, the Russians, they thought they had no better allies, really, than the East Germans, just as the Americans thought they had no better allies in Europe than the West Germans. Uh, and this was because the Germans were very uh, punctilious, because the Germans uh, believed in order, because the Germans uh, kept everything uh, unbelievably organized. So they followed the Soviet ways uh, very, very closely. And uh, so that was part of the reason for them being uh, to be stunned. But also, uh, they realized with that that everything would unspool, that they would lose the Baltic republics, for example. And the Baltic republics uh, were very important to them. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania it gave them a much bigger uh, window 
on the Baltic Sea. Uh, and when they went, well, then, uh, of course, the rest of the East was going to uh, unravel after that. I, I mean, the other Warsaw Pact nations, but also parts of the Soviet Union, Belarus uh, and Ukraine, Ukraine in particular. And that was the one, along with East Germany, that in my experience really rattled the Soviets and made them understand that their brutal game of subjugating so many people for so long was over. Uh, I, I remember having dinner with people there, Roy, and, and they were just stunned at the images, which they could see at that time on Soviet TV. It was a time of uh, glasnost and perestroika, so Gorbachev had opened the country up somewhat. But, of course, what he did was when he opened the door, uh, he opened the door to all kinds of changes that uh, he and his Politburo pals had never planned on. I uh, I just want to read a couple of lines from what you wrote uh, in your Global News piece. The Berlin Wall was the most iconic symbol of the Cold War, though in some places it was not a wall but a barbed wire fence. Still, anyone surveying the guard towers and barricades that cut Berlin in two or along the nearly 2,000-kilometer-long barrier that ran from the Baltic Sea to Niederbayern or Lower Bavaria with their packs of howling guard dogs, insidious automatic machine gun nests, and more than one million landmines, or who tried to reason with the officers' perpetually angry border guards, understood that the East German dictatorship and its Soviet masters were evil to the core. It really was the symbol of the evil empire. And when it, when it, when it, when it fell, Matthew, was there like almost an instant... I don't want to call it a, well, maybe I'll call it that, an instant sigh of, of massive um, international relief? No, I think there was uncertainty. What does this really mean? Will the Soviet Union lash out somehow? They, they still, of course, had, and they have today, Russia, nuclear weapons. Uh, will Europe become unstable uh, for the next few years? How can this be an orderly process? Will there be reunification with West Germany? How will that work when West Germany is so wealthy? East Germany is uh, with their Ostmarks, were nothing like the, the, the West German burghers. They spoke a common language, but they really, for a whole generation, had lived totally separate lives. So at the time, it actually invited far more questions. Today, we can see how it all worked out, uh, for good and for bad. But back then... It just set in train a whole lot of uncertainties. Uh, uh, among them, would they, uh, the Soviet Union come in and crush the revolts that were taking place in the Baltic states? Uh, uh, would they force the Ukrainians to do their bidding? Uh, and uh, so it was a time of extreme uncertainty. But in the Soviet Union, everything was chaotic, too. And, of course, Gorbachev gave way to Yeltsin, and his cowboy capitalism, and that's when you really understood uh, the game was totally up because the Soviet Union or Russia could no, uh, no longer even control their own economy, let alone anything else. Um, for you and I, and we're, we're from the same generation, uh, even the thought of the collapse of the Soviet Empire um, just a few years before the fall of the wall would have probably been unthinkable. And I, I agree with you. When I saw that wall first, the people climbing on it and over it, I thought, I wonder if the tanks are going to roll as they did in Czechoslovakia, as they did in Hungary, as they had in East Germany in 1953. So we are where we are. It's, you know, well, I guess we can debate how much better a world it is because it's a little wobbly these days. But Matthew, thank you so much for the time today and uh, for all the reporting that uh, that you've done, all the stories you've brought us, all the information you've provided over over those many years, I've uh, been, I've, I was a fan early on, and I'm still a big fan of your work. Well, uh, thank you, or danke schön. Bitte schön. Uh, I hope that, uh, bitte, bitte. And I hope that we get a chance to speak many times again, Roy. I hope so, too. Matthew and I have been exchanging emails in German over the last couple of days, and, uh, and we kind of mused about doing this interview in German, but I think we probably would have been stuck after 60 seconds. <laughs> Great to talk to you, Matthew. All the very best. Danke. Viel Spaß. Guten Tag zu Ihnen. Matthew Fisher, one of the very best. So we had a murderous attack on two SUVs in Mexico carrying women and children. 
allegedly by criminal drug cartel killers. Well, I guess you can pretty much definitively say that's what it was. And there was a headline uh, in the Guardian newspaper yesterday, how an isolated group of Mormons got caught up in Mexico's cartel wars. And there's a USA Today story with this headline, Hugs, Not Bullets, Mexican Security Strategy Increasingly Scrutinized in Wake of Massacre. Both of the stories were written by my guest, David Agrin, who is a reporter in, uh, in Mexico. He covers uh, Mexico as a freelance correspondent and is covering this terrible story for The Guardian and for USA Today. And David Agrin is Canadian, lives in Mexico City. David, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. Even, you know, as I read your stories, as I, uh, as I think about this, it's so unreal. It just, it just defies, um, it defies understanding. Yeah, it's 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 definitely um, I think captured attention in, in for this reason in part that it, it's so uh, well obviously senseless but it's so, so difficult to explain and in a lot of ways it, it, it's come to symbolize a lot of what um, the violence in Mexico the way that the violence in Mexico is being is, is occurring it, it just feels so senseless it feels you know it's 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 one it's criminal groups who are fighting each other, but obviously um, a lot of innocent victims are being, cap- uh, are being killed. I think what's in some ways different with this case, um, there's a couple things that obviously that are uh, help, uh, causing it to, to draw attention. One is that it's the, the population, obviously it occurred uh, against members of, a, of an isolated Mormon community who, you know, their roots go back in Mexico for, you know, more than a century to, you know, um, uh, an expedition sent by Brigham Young in 1975, um, and obviously, some people have focused on some of the religious angles that they are um, groups that are Mormons that are not um, part of the LDS Church, and they obviously some of them they came down to escape uh, polygamy, uh, pending polygamy laws. But you know they are U.S. citizens, and one of the things with them is that they they have a, a binational a real. When you talk to them, there's a real binational characteristic to them. You can they speak perfect English. They uh, they work a lot in the U.S. Uh, they uh, work in the construction trades, but then they'll take their the, their earnings and they'll come back to this pocket of uh, you know near the in uh, just south of the Arizona Arizona border in, in Sonora, Sonora Sonora State in Chihuahua and, and uh, invested into uh, pecan orchards. So they're very they're they're they're, they're prosperous and. They suffered violence in the past. Back in 2009, there was a kidnapping in their, one of their towns with a, a cartel out of, the, out of Ciudad Juarez, and they refused to pay the, the ransom, this, the, the, one of the families, the LeBron family. And so uh, the boy ended up being released uh, without any ransom being paid. Um, unfortunately, two of, the, two of the community members who really spearheaded this effort to, uh, you know, this sort of anti, anti-crime um, advocacy were were dragged from their homes and murdered. So, it uh, they were known for that, and they're once again fighting back and making a lot of noise. And it's putting a, um, in some ways, it's causing a lot of discomfort for the Mexican government. Um, a lot of times, the government in this country, for all the the crime and killings that occur, they they prefer to focus on other matters. And mm-hmm. David, know, David, this this so. it's, it was it was speculated initially that this might have been a misdirected hit. That's now sure. that's now been put set aside, right? There's no is there still a sense that this maybe uh, was a mistake? You know that's the, that's the problem. Nobody really knows. And it, it, I mean, for example, you know, I, I listened to I listen I received a a source uh, sent me. Um, 40 WhatsApp messages from the family, and the, the, the people were, were, were recording audio messages and sending them to each other. And, you know, when they come in, they're coming across the scene is that it, it appears to be a, a, an ambush of some sort, but at the same time, one of the bo- there was a boy who, uh, I believe a 13-year-old boy, who walked back, he walked 26 kilometers back to, the, to get help, uh, who said that... It, you know, his mother had gotten out of the out of one of the SUVs and was mm-hmm. waving her hands, right. uh, and and was shot anyway. So, and know, it was all it was it was was it was it targeted? We don't know. It was all women and children as well. So that's correct. Yeah, three th- three women. Six well, let me ask you this: There's a tremendous amount of violence that 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 circulates within the drug cartel sure. uh, reality in Mexico, and thousands and thousands of murders every year. Mm-hmm. Um, within that, within that horror 
does this do these murders stand out as being significantly different to other murders that happen, apart from the fact that they're dealing with people with, with dual citizenship? Yeah, I'm not I, trying to be I, cold I, about it. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, and it's uh, it's unfortunate to say, but that certainly draws the attention to the to the fact that they are uh, dual citizens. That they uh, and that the, and that the other thing that, that I I have to say is I've I've you know been covering this for a long time, and one of the things you find with crime victims is they generally do not speak. I've gone to funerals, and uh, you think it would be a case for uh, you should be welcome they'd want to get their story out but they just they really shy away from the press attention and one of the unfortunate things about mexico is that um i don't know if this is the case here i think you know one thing one thing you're starting to see is is just with some of the social media responses um is that people who are you know pro-government here the supporters of the of the the current president are are saying are trying to some are sort of inferring there's like this dark past in the colony and Mm -hmm. they must have been up to no good and you 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 get a lot of that in mexico where victims of crime are often seen as uh complicit in the crimes committed against them and so uh there was a early on when ever since 2006 when this escalation of the the crackdown on drug cartels started and violence escalated the, the federal government would come out and say well without offering any proof that 98 percent of the people killed in these crimes are somehow mixed up in illegal activities uh-huh. so i mean there was never any proof but a lot of people just seem to uh shun victims including and victims will say that even their own family members view them suspiciously let me ask you so in the in the, in the two where maybe this is different in that sense yeah. so I, I i i think there's some there's some sense that these people okay. in been. in the time in the time that i have left let me ask you a couple of yeah. questions here sure yeah this this particular area of mexico it, it it's an area disputed by two crime syndicates right now right that's right mm-hmm. so so they've been at each other and uh did did one of the one group from one crime syndicate help the families uh, at, at some point or assist them? We, in- we, we believe that to be the case, that, uh, yes, basically what happens is, is it's, a, it's a border area between two states, right. Sonora and Chihuahua, and what, what occurs often is that uh, these groups will fight over uh, drug-running territories. Right. And so what happened, what, what, what sort of came to light, and this is partly through interviews I've confirmed uh, with family members, is that... Um, these families knew they were sort of familiar with uh on the sonora side the, the family of the victims they, they were familiar they were they were fam- they were familiar with these with these criminal groups mm-hmm. so what they believe happened was that one group from the chihuahua side uh, committed these crimes committed the murders and what happened is that they got up on the when the family members got to the scene uh another group arrived on foot uh, and they were from the Sonora side, and these they went into the crime scene with this group. So yes, um, oh. that that's that's what the so so is. so then this question: What next? Because as you write in the USA Today story, the Mexican strategy govern the current the new government strategy mm-hmm. is being questioned because uh, you write hugs not bullets. What in about sixty seconds? Well, sure. Where's I mean, it going? They want to do the big thing. The government wants to do is they they believe crime is brought uh, that these the organized crime activity is a product of uh, poverty and uh, corruption, mm-hmm. and and maybe there's some truth to that. But at the, in the meantime, there has to be some sort of security strategy. What the governments do in Mexico, and there's, there's, this is no different, is one is that this 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 president is going to try to uh, he's had a lot of cash stipend programs for people that are. Uh, young people that don't have jobs pay farmers to plant trees he's trying to do things that you know give people money in these rural areas and maybe they're not going to be as uh dependent on going into illegal activity okay. um but the other thing too is one thing he has done uh for all the discourses he's also started something called the national guard which is basically a militarized police and that will replace what was previously the federal police and so what the, what a lot of times happens in mexico is people just they, every time there's a new president, they feel like they have to reinvent the wheel and start their own program. Okay. And so that's, you know, so what's going to happen, I think, is, unfortunately, I think in the short term, it just feels like it's just going to keep on being the same as always. Okay, so in the few seconds we have here, uh, do you see a situation, do you see a, 
a likelihood that uh, this case is going to be resolved, or will it just remain open? And do you think there's going to be more violence between? And we only have a few seconds, but yeah, do you anticipate so think, there'll be think, more I think, violence? I think if the, if there's uh, if the government wants to get involved and really wants to solve it, and there's pressure on them to do that from the U.S. side, yes, yes, they they, they certainly can resolve it. But uh, the core issue is you have two groups that are fighting over territory. And that doesn't change. One group, one group has to impose itself on the other. David, that's, that's I really appreciate you coming on. Really appreciate you coming on the show and talking okay. to us. It's a, such a horrible, horrible story, and so many questions and very few answers at this point. Thanks so much. Okay, you're welcome, David Agron. He's a Canadian reporter, lives in Mexico City, reporting on the story of the mass murders of the women and the children in the two SUVs by the uh, drug cartels. He's uh, writing for The Guardian and for USA Today. So, as you know, if you've been following the news, and I know you all are, uh, earlier in the week, a reporter asked Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer if he considers being gay a sin, and Scheer's lengthy reply has been disseminated in media repeatedly, and the question then becomes, is the same standard applied to more liberal politicians, but Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh be expected to answer personal questions about their religious beliefs. And Michael Taub is a columnist for Troy Media, contributor to the Washington Times, and a former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. And uh, we're fortunate because Michael comes on this program. So I want to ask you about that, Michael. Then I also sent you a, a question. And my question to you was, given what Singh said, and that is that no social conservative can be elected prime minister of Canada, he, he might want yeah. to take a look at his own lack of success in the last election. But that aside, I asked you whether you thought it might be necessary for the conservative party to move a little bit to the left by the time the next election comes around if they wish to form a majority government. Let's start with the, uh, let's start with the, the question asked Mr. Scheer about his religious beliefs. What do you make of that? What's your response to that? Yeah, you know, I, I find it very facetious that we're even getting into this conversation simply because if we live in a free society and we live in a democracy, which I think we all recognize that we do, people are allowed to hold positions that are either similar to ours or contrary to ours. When it comes to politics, you have to be a unifier, which means that you are allowed to hold your own personal beliefs. But if we use Andrew Scheer as an example, Roy, it's not the Andrew Scheer party, it's the Conservative Party of Canada. And Mr. Scheer, like Stephen Harper before him, or if we want to go back to the old federal PCs and throw them in, like Brian Mulroney, Joe Clark, Kim Campbell, etc., whether you liked or disliked these people, they all knew that they were the leader of a party of many different individuals. A disparate amount of people who have different positions on fiscal issues, social issues, etc. And for that reason, they realized that to be successful, not only do you have to align with grassroots members and their various ideas, you also have to align with Canadians who may be conservatives, may not be conservatives in this case. Andrew Scheer is fundamentally aware of that. He has said on multiple occasions that social issues like gay marriage, abortion, etc. are over. There is no further discussion. The issue has been discussed and been parsed through it more than enough. It is time to move on. You know, the law of the land is what it is. The ideas and concepts are what they are. Canadians have many diver different diverse views on this. We have to move forward. So, no, for the party to, to say that a social conservative cannot lead a modern conservative party is nonsensical. Of course, he or she can. It depends how you craft your message and what issues you decide to promote. In other words, you can have your own personal views on certain things, but you have to recognize that the members have their own views, that being party members, and that Canadians have their own views, and you have to govern accordingly. So whatever is acceptable, you know, via the average Canadian, is the best way to go about it. It doesn't mean that you're giving up on your principles. It doesn't mean you aren't taking a personal stand on issues. But you're realizing, or at least you understand the reality is, that there's an enormous amount of people. It's a big conservative tent. It's a big Canadian tent. And you have to govern that way. Now, other politicians are not asked questions like that, or at least I don't no. think they are. And I would like to see Mr. Trudeau quizzed insistently on the issue of his racist actions, on his lack of ethics, yep. and his lack of uh, adherence to um, proper behavior, because he's been convicted several times of conflict of interest violations. Correct. And uh, SNC-Lavalin and the matter in which he uh, treated Admiral Mark Norman he doesn't seem to be pursued on this. It's been, it's, it's like it's over, and it's not over. It shouldn't no. be over. 
No, absolutely not. Well, what you're alluding to is quite correct, that there is a double standard in Canadian politics, that right-leaning politicians are typically grilled on particular issues ad nauseum to death. It never ends. Well, basically, left-leaning politicians, or centrists, if you wish, tend to get a bit of a pass after they've answered the question, let's say, several times. If you take blackface, brownface, the whole controversy that Justin Trudeau faced, our current prime minister, yes, he was asked about it a fair bit, but he's not being asked about it anymore. And he didn't answer. No, he hasn't. Still this day, other than he was apologetic, he blamed it, you know, based on his background and his position, sure. which, which is nonsensical. It, but he didn't answer, an he didn't answer, have you done it more than three times? And no. he didn't answer, was 2001 the last time? Yes, exactly. When he was 29 years old and a school teacher in B.C., when he should have known better. And I think no matter whether you voted for Mr. Trudeau or not, I mean, that should be incredibly obvious. Uh, Michael, we have a minute here, so let me condense or at least uh, put two questions together, compress two questions. Okay. Uh, Your column was why Andrew Scheer should remain Tory leader. My position last weekend was that he shouldn't, and I'm staying there, but I want to hear what you have to say. And then... I asked you whether the Conservative Party, based on what's been said and on the election results, should move a little bit to the left come the next federal election. Yeah, again, the party does not have to move to the left. There is absolutely no need for that. Again, it's how you craft your your message and sell small-c conservative principles, which may not always necessarily mesh with Canadian values, and if that's the case, you have to find a way for them to do so. And that can be lower taxes, smaller government, more individual rights and freedoms. You know, we all know what the mantra is, but they obviously have to sell it properly. And for Andrew Scheer, I mean, the key for his survival, because as you said my, in my syndicated column, I said that he should be allowed to continue. The party grew by 26 seats in the last federal election. They actually won the popular vote, which, yes, in our first past the post system doesn't mean anything, but it still is, you know, it's, it's an accomplishment, if nothing else, or a moral victory. It shows that he's able to, A, knock the Liberals down to a minority, and B, build on that for a second, you know, a second try, as most federal leaders get a second kick at the can. But for him to move to the left and even try to switch it a little bit, A, it would be hypocritical, B, it would not be believable, and C, most importantly, Roy, I think it would turn off a lot of party members and a lot of supporters, and that would, be, that would include me. I'm with you on A, B, and C. <laughs> but I do, I do want on another occasion to have a little bit of a go-round with you on the issue about Mr. Shear staying as party leader. But we Absolutely. can do that another day. You bet. I'd be happy to. Thanks, Michael. Always good talking to you. I appreciate the time. Where are you in the zoo? What are you looking at? Well, I'm currently in the Africa area right now. I'm just with my wife and son and some other people. It's very quiet out here. It's windy. But <laughs> I'm basically <laughs> right near, for people who know the zoo, I'm right near the sign that says Kisho or Kesho Park. So... Basically, it's, you know, it's interesting. We've gone through various exhibits, seen the polar bears and other things, but right. uh, there are people wandering around, but it's pretty quiet, and I can certainly understand well, why with the weather the way it is. Thanks so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Have a great weekend. You too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right at the moment, there's a little intergenerational thing going on between boomers and then the most subsequent generations or generation, and uh, it's all resulted in something called OK Boomer. Hi, everybody. It's Roy Green, Chorus Radio Network. I'm a boomer. Catherine Swift is a boomer, and Catherine is with me now, one of the beauties, of course, from Beauties and the Beast and WorkingCanadians.ca, because, Catherine, when I uh, was on Twitter last night or late yesterday, I saw you started something on OK Boomer, and it just took off. So, <laughs> so can I get you to pick up the ball and and tell us what this 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 whole issue is as far as you're concerned. New York Times runs a five page story on it. Yeah. Uh, what's it about? What was the response? And what do you make of it? Well, it's interesting because I had I had heard of this, you know, in dribs and drabs over the last few months, kind of thing that there was this uh, so called meme out there, OK Boomer, and 
it's meant to be a pejorative to from the younger generation, the millennials, to the boomers, you and I, uh, supposedly. But but it was interesting because actually after we chatted yesterday, I, I did a little more digging around and um, and and it's it's intriguing as to why this happened. Apparently, there's and both my kids are millennials, so I mean most of us boomers, if we have kids, they're millennials. You know that's pretty much the generation. So it's not as if they're an alien species, although sometimes kids do seem like they are. Uh, but um, I, I just found there was much more resentment there than I than I thought prior to doing a little digging among the millennials for the boomers. And I had, I mean, we've all heard, oh, the boomers, you, you ruined everything, you ruined the climate, you, you know, built up all this death and all that kind of stuff. But what I found intriguing, Roy, because when I did put that out, I must say, I sort of put it out innocently on, on Twitter. I just thought, this okay boomer thing, you know, what is it? And I, I was deluged with a lot of boomers who said, oh, it's silly, silly. A lot of millennials who said, we don't hate boomers. And then some millennials that said, yeah, you guys, you just wrecked everything and you left us to, you know, pick up the slack. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very interesting thing. It doesn't seem to be um, a terribly unified movement, if we can, <laughs> if we can call it that. Um, but what I found hilarious, I have to tell you, is William Shatner, I don't know if you're aware of this, but as I was rooting around online, um, William Shatner apparently got quite into this OK Boomer thing, and and he's he's a, he's a, he's very good on Twitter. I, I follow him because he's quite funny, and he had one obvious millennial woman that he was going back and forth with, and she came back to him at one point and said, "Well, I don't like to be negative, but uh, what is it that you call somebody if they really can't take a joke?" And and Shatner sends back millennial. <laughs> <laughs> So it was uh, it, it was a very interesting. I, I was quite surprised by the uh, volume of response I got on all sides of the issue. No, I saw I I guess I, uh, boomers. I mean, I don't think a lot of people realize how extremely unusual the boomer generation is in pure numbers. It just sheer, sheer numbers. It'll probably never happen again in the history of the world. I guess it's always mm-hmm. possible to predict anything that uh, you know that uh, sweeping. But it was a real oddity for people post-war. You know, it was the post-war baby boom, and people just had a whole whack of kids all around the same time. And yes, the boomer generation has driven an awful lot of marketing trends. And, you know, when boomers are buying houses, it drove up prices, and boomers are going to be getting out of their houses, and, that, you know, that's going to have another impact on that market and so on and so forth. So. But it's an interesting phenomenon. There's well, it is. When, when, I look at the, when I look at the New York Times story, and the New York Times story is fairly lengthy, OK Boomer marks the end of friendly generational relations. All right, so that's a headline designed to get attention. But sure. but it also d- it did get attention, and it's been responded to. And I got some emails after I tweeted that you'd be on with the air with me today. People sometimes send me emails saying we can't get all the words in that we want on Twitter, so we'll send you an email. And a couple of them were not exactly friendly toward boomers. And so my response was, uh, what you and I talked about off uh, off the air yesterday was, without a couple of boomers named Jobs and Gates, yeah. <laughs> uh, the current generation may be waiting for the most uh, recent uh, incarnation of the of the IBM Selectric typewriter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it was well, it was and it was Jobs and and Gates who who moved us forward. With with the PC and then with the iPhone and created much of the the internet reality that we have now. Exactly. No. No. I mean, and frankly, you, you know, you why are we being defensive? Things. Pardon me. Why are we being defensive? Well, no, I, indeed, <laughs> indeed, uh, and I, I agree because, I, well, first of all, I've always thought it was ridiculous to sort of blame somebody for the year they were born. I mean, come on. <laughs> Yeah, but you know the the one thing. What interests me about this, Catherine? One aspect of it that interests me is that the youngest generation is now convinced the planet is dying, that the planet is that we're in a crisis situation, and we have a very limited amount of time to save the planet. Like some think months, um, and and that creates an intergenerational tension that I haven't seen before. Yeah, you're will right. it go and, away? And well, I don't know. Hmm? There is a political element to this. Of course there is, yeah. And part of it is the climate, you know, the whole climate thing. But what I find interesting, because it it does tend to be, by and large, again, I I found a lot of disparate, you know, this is not a unified sort of movement here. But there does seem to be the climate issue comes up all the time. Um, But what strikes me, which is interesting, is 
this generation doesn't seem to have the same concern over the massive amount of debt that governments are currently building up in their name that they're ultimately going to be responsible for. And they're voting. I mean, we just have, you know, an election in Canada. Sure. A lot of younger people voted for sure. liberals who are spending like fiends. But, you know, I have to say at the same time, when I was their age, when I was the millennials age, or the, I, I, lose, I lose track of all the generational names as we move down the, the pipe to 2019. But I didn't really know what was going on in the world. I, tr- I, assume, I tried to pretend that I did. But I didn't really know what was going on in the world until later on in life. No, when I started paying long. taxes and having, had to face personal responsibility and there was nobody to backstop me. Well, then that's why when you hear about all these people that want to reduce the voting age to 16, it's like, oh, holy moly, you know. That's a political <laughs> movement. That's, yeah. So, uh, what, I mean, what do, we, what do we make of this? It's, it's the age-old phenomenon to accuse previous generations of having fouled the goulash. But here we are in 2019, and uh, we have this OK Boomer thing going on. By the way, I think it's rather weak. should be able to come up with something better than OK it's, it's Boomer. It's not very creative. No, it's, right. it's weak. And that's why when I first saw it, I thought, what does that mean even? You know, OK yeah. Boomer? It could be interpreted a whole bunch of different ways. But maybe ways. we're just grumpy. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> maybe I we're the just older grumpy. I get, the more I, I laugh at everything. <laughs> why don't we do this? Let's, let's, why don't we take a few phone calls? Sure. Uh, Catherine tweeted, I find this boomer thing strange. Most of us boomers have millennial kids we care lots about and are helping succeed. Most tech devices young folks love were invented by boomers. All younger generations mock their elders as they should, but this one's weird. What am I missing? A couple of replies to Catherine. Uh, uh, Let me see what we've got here. And uh, we didn't get anything from our parents. We had to earn this all ourselves. They think they're being clever, but in reality, they're just being lacy and derivative. Um, Mark wrote to Catherine, children should be seen and not heard. Tell them to clean, the, tell them to clean their room. <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny because uh, that one response, about we, you know, our parents didn't give us anything. I, I noticed somebody else came back, a younger person came back and went, oh, you guys were so lucky. You were given everything. To do. You know, so yeah, yeah. There's, that, there's definitely that perception. That, well, let's uh, take a couple of phone calls. Yes. And see what we're getting at 800-263-2428. 1-800-263-2428. Is there anything to this generational conflict that's developing around the OK Boomer um, phenomenon? Andrea is in Toronto. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for the call. Hello. Hi. So are you or are you not a boomer? I'm not a boomer, no. Okay. So what do you make of this? Um, I think from what I've seen of it online anyway... I think what you said previously about like the millennials being angry at boomers because of the economy or climate or other things, like I think there's some truth to that. But from where I'm sitting, I think that it's more so um, like a retaliation against some type of headlines that come out a lot about, you know, millennials not being able to take jokes or not being good at things that boomers have been good at in the past. Mm-hmm. So, so this is this is this is this is a somewhat serious situation then. Yeah, yeah? I, I would think that I think that from what I've seen of it, it's more so just a joke. I mean, it's kind of part of that quote unquote meme culture where jokes come in and people try to apply them to a bunch of different things and then they kind of cycle out. Okay, Catherine. Yeah, no, I think I think that's very true. Um, but there is, you know, what seems to be underlying it, and again, authority on this, but. But there is there is a resentment thing, though, for sure. I, I mean, that's what seems to be driving it. And whenever I've seen it, and by the way, it's not just North America, Roy. There's instances all over the world of this. Just for the record, so it's uh, it's quite well. Uh, I'm new. I'm new to this, Catherine. Quite pervasive. Yeah, yeah. I'm new but to no, this I think, phenomenon. I think that, you know, Andrew's absolutely right. Um, you know that uh, this meme thing, and given our current social media and everything, it, it just takes off. But there is a, there's definitely a real a real resentment underlying this on the part of a lot of millennials. And also another comment I remember seeing more than a few times in the responses to my tweet were um, just talking about how boomers like to call millennials snowflakes, or you know they 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 disparage millennials. Well, well, let's ask Andrea. Let's ask Andrea this: Is it is it really uh, is what's been said about millennials completely unfair or and unjustified? Or is some of it rooted in truth, like, you know, they live in their parents' basements way too long, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I know that's going to get a response right away, and, <laughs> and, and there's, 
there's just this uh, this need to be to be to be liked, and we want our maybe this is the next generation. We want our safe spaces. That may not be the millennials, but yeah. is is there some think, truth rooted rooted into the uh, into the accusations that have been leveled toward millennials? I think I think there's truth probably that goes both ways. I think that it's hard because you're trying to generalize a whole generation. So uh-huh. anytime you try to do that, Bingo. you're going to hit some of them and then you're going to miss a lot of other ones. So, so when think- you hear something, if I were to do something with an employer on the air and we're talking about uh, millennials being, I don't know, um, not as engaged as they should be. And I've done a show like that with an employer who made that, who made that case or made that mm-hmm. argument. Do you, do you get, do you, do you feel a degree uh, or a sense of resentment when you hear that? Because you're saying this is, this is just painting everybody, including me with the same brush. And I may not fit into that category or, yeah, or is I it something that you just ignore? I think, well, personally, I just kind of ignore it, but I think that's where, if anything, the resentment would come from is, is that feeling of, Oh, I'm being painted with, this brush that everyone's being painted with, and I don't feel like I fit into that category. Okay, so here's the, yeah. here's the last question I have for you, Andrea, and mm. then we'll get Catherine in on this. Do you believe that boomers are still relevant, or should we just get out of the way? Oh, they're absolutely still relevant. I mean, that's the whole thing that's funny about all of this, is that, you know, you should be able to criticize, you know, the generation before us who hopefully you don't make the same mistakes, but ultimately, like, they're there as a resource, and you should use that resource to learn from. All right, Ms. Swift? Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, and I was just thinking of another little element of this we haven't mentioned yet, which is that a lot of people blame the boomers for the entitlement of millennials. Like we were the helicopter parents. We were, you know what I mean? We, we, were, yeah. we, we caused this problem. And again, it's all generalizations, which of course. Mm-hmm. So is this thing just going to fizzle out then? Is it just going to go away? Is it, just, is it something that has 15 minutes of shelf life and then it's gone? That's that's what I would say. I think that's just kind of the the like again, quote unquote, the meme culture or just the jokes of the internet. People use them like until they get sick of them, basically. And I think that'll happen here too. I'm I'm not so sure, to be honest. And again, time will tell. But I'm not so sure because I do think there is a, a wellspring of resentment here, not with every millennial, but a lot. And and mm-hmm. so it might keep this alive for a while. All yeah, right. it Andrew? could be just the tip of the iceberg, too. It could go exactly. either way. Exactly, it's possible. Thank you for the call, Andrea. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. In Toronto, let's go to London. We have a minute left. Here's Greg in London, Ontario. Greg, what about it? Yeah, Roy. Uh, oh, I'm a late-stage baby boomer, and my son's a millennial. Um, I brought him up uh, in a way not to be one of the complainers, to show him the realities of life. I think I run into, well, I have nephews and nieces that are millennials, and and they have a different perspective. They, 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 I don't know, they, they have a little bit of a self-entitlement. And I, I found another thing is they're not willing to, to kind of work towards something over, over a lifetime to, to obtain like a, a certain status or a certain occupation, and, you know, and, and they, they want it all now. Okay. And, and I also see them getting them. Greg, I, Greg, I'm going to stop you because of the clock, and I thank you for the call, sir. Catherine, we have 30 seconds. You made that point in our conversation yesterday about wanting it now as opposed to, you know. Well, I, think, I, I don't think that's restricted to millennials. I think that's our credit card culture. That's our, you know, and okay. you know I've discussed before, Roy, my parents' generation, they saved up to buy a new fridge or, you know, whatever, a TV, whereas... Our, our generation, and it, I think okay. it's even worse with younger ones, it, Catherine, it, is, it is now. Thank you so much for the time and that Thank tweet you, yesterday. Great fun. It's good stuff. Yeah, it is. It's great <laughs> fun. It's also important. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. Uh, did the royal family, let's move on to this story, did the royal family quash a major news story about Prince Andrew having had sex with an underage girl at convicted sexual trafficker of minors Jeffrey Epstein's resort? ABC News anchor Amy Robach was picked up by a live mic expressing frustration at having the network refuse to air her story because, and you can pick this out of what she's saying, there was concern she had that maybe Buckingham Palace was delayed some objections with the network, that it would cost interviews with influential people. The network says that is not the case, and now Ms. Robach is saying the same thing. They're now saying that the story didn't meet their journalistic requirements. But here's what the live mic picked up as Amy Robach, ABC News anchor, expressed her frustration that her story about Epstein and what was going on at the pedophile's resort didn't make it to air. Have a listen. 
I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will say, oh, that we that also quashed the story. And then, um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. I, I tried for three years to get it on to no avail, and now it's all coming out, and it's like these new revelations, and I freaking had all of it. I, I, I'm so pissed right now. Like, every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh, my God. We, it was, um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney, three years ago saying, like, aunt, like, we, there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. And I had it all three years ago. So there is uh, ABC News anchor Amy Robach, and obviously extremely frustrated over the fact that the story she had, she said three years ago, wasn't aired. And now the question is, did the royal family put pressure on the network not to air the story, or did the network feel there might be pressure uh, from Buckingham Palace, and that pressure may result if they ran the story with lack of access to important people, which is the bread and butter of uh, some aspects of television networks. Jane Kirtley joins me, professor of Silha, professor of media ethics and law at the Harvard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. She's uh, an affiliated faculty member at the University of Minnesota Law School and has been very generous with her time to us. Professor Kirtley, thank you so much for the time. When you hear Amy Robach, what alarm bells, if any, does that ring for you? Well, as someone who in my former life advised journalists uh, about legal stories and so forth, I, that the frustration that I hear is one you often hear from journalists who are convinced they've got all their ducks in the row and haven't quite achieved it. Um, again, not being privy to all, what all she had at the time that she was expressing her pr frustration, I certainly can't uh, opine about whether ABC was right or wrong in saying they weren't quite ready. But uh, having said all that, to try to be as kind and generous as I can, as you said, um, particularly at least here in the United States, the broadcast news networks, um, all of them, all three of them now, I mean, I'm talking about broadcast now, not cable, um, are, uh, you know, they've turned into, uh, you know, celebrity TV entertainment to a great extent, even of their morning uh, newscasts, which used to be more substantive. I have absolutely no doubt that ABC would be very concerned about alienating their access to the royal family because that's been such an important part of their, um, you know, news and entertainment coverage in the last few years. So it seems completely plausible to me that this is what did occur in this case. I think the other thing it's helpful to keep in mind is that we've seen a lot of craven behavior from the broadcast networks in the last few years on what I would characterize as Me Too-related stories. I mean, obviously this is not Me Too in the classic sense because it doesn't seem to involve you know, sexual harassment and so forth within the workplace. But if you compare this with the whole issue with NBC and why they did not want to run Ronan Farrow's stories about uh, Harvey Weinstein, um, using exactly the same excuse that we don't have the story uh, nailed down well enough yet, and so then he took it elsewhere where they were happy to publish it, and now it's all coming out in a book. I think it's fair to say that uh, oftentimes these broadcasters do tiptoe around these uh, stories about uh, sexual uh, proclivities, especially of the rich and powerful. And uh, a family like the royal family of uh, Britain and Canada, they, if they wanted to exert pressure, they sure could do it. Absolutely, and and it's known that they do. I mean, obviously, they have greater force uh, within the United Kingdom itself. 
Um, I mean, occasionally we'll read a story in The Guardian, as you mentioned earlier, someplace like that about exactly how the royal family public relations machine has set out to quash stories that they don't want told. And, of course, access, if you're in the U.K., is is probably, I would argue, a much more critical issue than it should be for a U.S. company. I mean, you know, we we severed our ties with the royal family quite some time ago, and and so the, the obsession with this is something that I don't quite understand. At least in the United Kingdom, you have some justification to say that your tax dollars are going to support these people and so forth. Why Americans should really care about what they're up to continues to mystify me. But there it is. And for somebody like ABC, this is an important competitive uh, issue for them. I can absolutely see that they would have told this reporter, we're not going forward with this Mm -hmm. story. And as far as the royals are concerned, and uh, this particular story, the story, of course, revolved around uh, rumors and suggestions, and no one has proven anything, but there were stories about Prince Andrew having and had sex. And photographs, right, with, know, that, yeah. that are attributed to, to identifying him. Of course, he contests that, but you know, there, it's not just word of mouth. I mean, there seems to be some documentary evidence to support it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel very fortunate because in my entire career, by uh, and, and you know, have different incarnations of different companies have owned the uh, the studio that I work out of, but I've never, not once, have I been told, not once ever has been suggested to me, you shouldn't do this story because it's never been suggested to me that I shouldn't do a story. Right. If I have if I have something that I feel I should air, and I, if it's uh, on on the edge, as it were, uh, Professor Curtley, I. I would make my employer aware of what I'm doing, but I've never been told, don't do it. As long as you have the proof, as long as you can back up what you're saying, go for it. You know, the, the one of the tenets of the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics, and it's, it's really the main one, is to seek truth and report it. Um, you know, that's what news it's supposed to be about. That's what journalists are supposed to be doing uh, here in the United States with our First Amendment. Although it doesn't say we have a duty to do these things, I think most good journalists think that they do. And that that's where their highest loyalty has to be, to seeking the truth and reporting it to the public. Now, let's be clear. In the United States, obviously, we're talking about commercial businesses. They have competitive concerns. They have financial concerns. They have legal exposure concerns. And all of those things go into the pot when you're trying to decide whether you've you've fully cooked your story and you're ready to go forward with it. And, And it can be very frustrating to journalists. But on the other hand, as you and I have talked about in the past, there are also times when news organizations get ahead of a story and end up with egg on their face mm-hmm. because they hadn't nailed down all the details. Yeah. So in and of itself, I, I don't quarrel with the idea that ABC would say we really need to have this absolutely sealed up, signed and delivered before we would publish it. But the notion that we won't do it because we are afraid we won't be able to interview Kate and Will is, is just so problematic to me from a journalistic perspective because it's really telling me that the public interest is not your main concern. It's your financial bottom line. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And when I listen to Amy Robach's voice, that's not somebody who is just expressing a moment's worth of frustration. That's been building up for some time. When you hear her speak the way she has, she did, that's, that's real frustration. And she truly believed that she had what was necessary and it should have gone to air. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.